Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, May 16th, 2020. Right now it is actually Wednesday morning. Once again, we have our friend Truthfids here with us to address Charles Weissman's book, What About Two Seed Line, or I'm sorry, What About the Seed Line Doctrine? And this is part 14 of that endeavor, and this program is subtitled The Bad Figs, something else that Weissman just didn't seem to understand. Hello, Truthfits. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so the uh, bad figs or the goats, it's your favorite phrase. Um, there's there's many ways to describe them, and it shows that Christ's teaching was very consistent, and it was all the way through the Old Testament. The prophets, like Jeremiah, they were always trying to warn the people of the race mixing, which was always the downfall. And also another thing that Weissman never explains is one of the many reasons Christ came, and that was to divide the wheat from the tars. And that was the gospel of Christ. If you want to divide the non-whites from whites, the only way is the gospel, especially like us. It's on their behavior. It's the only way you can truly distinguish them from us. And Weissman never explains that. And none of his teachings truly explain the purpose of the gospel. Right, Bill? Well, well absolutely. I mean, Christ said that it were wheat and, and tares that the field is the world and and the the field is sown with tares as soon as the farmer planted the wheat so that that's the um the story of genesis chapter three and weissman just it, it seems that he knows all this he just refused it he purposely refused it and tried to overcome it and and all of his attempts to overcome it fail as we will see i pray once again or twice again here this evening. He, he fails miserably. He purposely misreads verses or he was too stupid to read. I don't believe he was too stupid to read. When, when Christ said, you're of your father the devil, he was talking about Cain. He wasn't talking about the serpent. So these people he was talking to, they were followers of Cain? No, they were descendants of Cain. And, and we will see that later on when we address other things Weissman says, and, and we will see that. Um, when, when it says in Genesis chapter 6 that um, there were giants in the earth in those days and after when the sons of God went into the daughters of men, that, that means that the giants were here from the beginning. They were in the earth in those days. They weren't just the result of race mixing. They were there before the race mixing and partook in it. So we see that the giants were the Nephilim, the, the fallen ones, the fallen angels. It, it's, he, he, he purposely misread those passages. I don't believe he couldn't read. He, he was too intelligent not to be able to read. So he was purposely misre misreading those passages and, and interpreting them in a way that he could um, fit them into that this false paradigm that he created, which leads to universalism every time. It, 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 he's um, denying that the tares are tares. He's denying the tares. 
He's thinking that if they behave well, they could be wheat. And that's not true because they're sown. And they were sown from the beginning. Over our last two presentations in the series, we have covered perhaps only two pages of Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? And we've had a few long digressions. But we hope to have shown that in relation to many words found in the New Testament, Weissman had used the same methods of interpretation which had crept into the early Universalist Church and which were adopted from Gnosticism and Greek philosophy, but which are not at all Christian. So last week in part 13 of this series, subtitled Children of Wrath, we addressed a claim by Weissman that where Christ referred to his adversaries as children of the devil, he was only speaking metaphorically and telling them that they were mere followers of the devil. Making that argument, the first flaw is that he seems to have purposely ignored the fact that Christ was speaking in reference to Cain and not to the serpent of Genesis. So if Christ was implying that his adversaries were mere followers of the devil, why would he make a reference to Cain as their father and not to the serpent itself? So while he made that assertion, Weissman then sought to show that being children of the devil was only a metaphor by comparing the phrase to similar metaphors which appear in the epistles of Paul or in the gospel accounts. Among these are the phrases children of wrath, children of light, children of the world, child of hell, children of disobedience, and son of perdition. So we began to examine each instance where these words occur that Weissman had cited, and a few that he did not cite where these phrases occur. Doing that, we found that these phrases certainly were used by the writers of Scripture to describe a class of people other than the children of God, a class which has no offer of mercy, forgiveness, or redemption, nor any part in the promises of God. Weissman failed to examine those phrases in their original biblical contexts, and therefore he expected his readers to take for granted his implication that they are all just metaphors describing people who are merely disobedient rather than people who in fact could never really be obedient in the first place because they are literally not of God. So in the course of doing that, we also hope to have proven the veracity of our rebuttal of Weissman through a method of interpretation which Weissman, in writing his book, had never considered. That method is the historical method, examining the history of the people of Judea at the time of Christ in order to find out whether his words could literally be true or could be literally true. And we demonstrated that to be the valid method of interpretation 
because it is indeed proven through an understanding of that history. But when we examined Weissman's list of presumably similar metaphors, we stopped short of the com complete we stopped short of completing our examination of his last citation in relation to the phrase son of perdition, which is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We left off where we discussed how that same phrase was used in reference to Judas Iscariot in John chapter 17 and demonstrated that when the words were spoken, Judas had not yet committed any sin, while even his act of betrayal, as odious as it can be to us, was not a transgression of anything explicit in the law. So he still cannot be accused of any sin. In fact, if Judas ever thought that Christ sinned according to the law, if Judas disbelieved the words of Christ and thought him to be a blasphemer, then according to um, passages in the law, like in Leviticus chapter 5, I believe, Judas had a, an obligation to report Christ to the authorities to betray him. As long as Judas disbelieved Christ and thought that the religious authorities of the time were correct. So if you really look into the circumstances of the crucifixion, and if you really understand the law, Judas really didn't break any law. Show me a law that he broke by betraying Christ. Now, we all know, not even as Christians, but through the normal course of our everyday life, that Judas was basically a traitor, and he, he should be shunned because of what he did, because he turned in a man who was essentially good and innocent. But he didn't break the law doing it. I'm sorry, Judas's being a traitor is not an explicit transgression of the law. So there must be some other reason why Christ had called him the son of perdition. Now, John had explained in chapter 12, of his gospel, that Judas was a thief and a robber. But John wrote his gospel many years after the fact, and the charges were never made or proven during Judas's lifetime. So he cannot be held accountable for them by any man, according to the law itself. However, as early as chapter six of his gospel, John explained that Christ was referring to Judas when he said, speaking in reference to his apostles, have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? So Judas was an apparent follower of Christ, and he was never accused of transgressing the law or having committed any sin. How was he a devil? This fact alone disproves Weissman's entire thesis concerning why Christ would call anyone a devil. Therefore, if Christ referred to Judas 
as a son of perdition in John chapter 17, he must also have meant something other than what Weissman is claiming here, and son of perdition is more than a metaphor describing someone who is merely disobedient. And John was uh, correct in the other gospel writers, right? He read the other gospel and then he wrote in that Judas, he only cared about the money. He realized that he never believed in Christ right from the get-go, and he wanted to make that clear. Well, well right, but there's an important um, element there of understanding. John was the closest companion of Christ during his lifetime. John was chosen to receive um, the revelation and many other things later in life that he expressed that the other gospel writers did not express, their opinion of Judas was rather objective. It really was objective. But John had th this um, advanced revelation or, or this higher revelation into Judas's true nature. And, and I don't believe that John was correcting the other gospel writers. John was only um, adding information. He didn't really copy everything that they wrote. He didn't repeat everything they wrote. He was just adding information in order to give us a greater understanding and insight into many aspects of the ministry of Christ that the other writers may not have witnessed the arguments, the lengthy arguments in the temple between Christ and the Pharisees in um, John chapter 8, John chapter 10, the, the, um, the, the inside information John had because he was closest to Christ, such as at the last Passover supper, where, where Peter was trying to beckon John to get some information from Christ, about who he was speaking about that would betray him. And the other gospel writers, even though they were in the same room, the ancient Greeks didn't all sit at a table. They reclined on couches to eat, and those couches would be spread across the room. So it, if two or three men could fit on, on a single couch, and three is... Um, I, I've never seen ancient artwork depicting three men on a couch. And if, if a bunch of fellows are in a room, then they have maybe for, for um, 12 or 15 men, you might have at least six or eight couches. And they're sitting on these couches that they're, they're like lounges, that they're not like the conventional couch with arms that we have today. It, it's... Um, sort of like what we would consider more like a chaise lounge or something, the, the way they were shaped and, and built. And, and that's what they would recline on. They would lean back on these things and eat on them. And you could only fit maybe two men on each one, and, and these apostles that spread across the room, they're not all seeing everything that's going on in the room. So Matthew, Mark, or... or Peter, Matthew and Peter, because it's commonly believed, and I believe it myself, that Mark was recording Peter's gospel. Matthew, Peter was involved in that incident, but Matthew may not have even seen or heard it. So how could he record it? 
and and Mark or, or Luke, I mean, Luke Luke's gospel is vicarious, but his witnesses may have never even seen or heard that 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 um, event, that interaction. So so that's just one small example of how John and why John's gospel is different. And John included a lot of things that he thought were important that tell us about the nature of Christ's enemies and, and the nature of Judas and, and many other insights that the other gospel writers who were more objective didn't understand or, or didn't think were important enough to include where John understood many years later that they were important enough to include. The gospels are richer for that reason. They're not, none of them are wrong, but they're richer for that reason because of the different perspectives and the innocent perspective which um, Mark reflects and, and which Matthew re reflects especially and Luke to a degree. But Luke's gospel also has um, information which enriches the gospel and, and um, buttresses its veracity which the other two don't, which Matthew and Mark don't. They all have their own unique um, aspect on things. But the synoptic gospels are very objective, where John's gospel is much more insightful. <laughs> so now we shall discuss the, um, the use by Paul of Tarsus of the same phrase that Christ had used in John chapter 17, the phrase son of perdition, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But once again, we will cite more of the passage than the portion to which Weissman referred, so we may see the entire context. Paul writes, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the King James Version, and by our gathering together unto him, the apostles had taught, and this is the correct way to teach, and there are reasons for it. The apostles taught that the return of Christ was imminent, that it was going to happen at any moment, and that's because that's how Christ wanted Christians to live. If you read the Gospels, he wanted them to live as if he was coming back at any moment. Watch, therefore. You do not know the day or the time or the hour when the Son of Man will return. So the apostles taught that, even though it would be 2,000 years later or, or maybe 3,000 years later. I doubt it, but otherwise we're not going to be here, right? But, but that's what he wanted them to teach, and that's what they taught. That ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. If Christians live their lives, and Christ used this, um, this same illustration as an allegory in his parables, if servants led their lives as if the master is going to come back at any moment, then they will be on their best behavior, they will be working in the manner that the master has prescribed. So if Christians live their lives as if Christ is going to return at any moment, they're going to keep the law and be doing the other things that he has 
expected them to do. So, loving their brethren and, and caring for their kin and, and all of that. So, if they think he's going to return at any moment, they're not going to stray from that path. That's why the apostles taught that way. So, Paul continues with verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. And, and that's in the meaning, but that's words that are um, inferred or implied by the, that they're inferred by the translators. So they copied them into English, right? They believe that Paul had implied them. So that's fine. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And this is why the King James made that implication and added all those words to the text, because there they made a mistake, because that that phrase is constructed from past tense verbs. Except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. And this is also um, just wrong. The son of perdition who opposed and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is a God. Now, to make inferences is um, sometimes necessary to have things make sense in English. But when there's too many added words, sometimes there's another reason for it, right? There are a few problems with this passage as the King James Version interpreted it, which we must explain briefly before continuing. First, in the phrase, except there come a falling away first, the verb in Greek is a past tense verb. It's not future tense, it's past tense. And it should have been translated because if apostasy had not come first, so it does not point to some still future event as the Judaized Christians have always interpreted it. Second, a lot of the archaic language is poorly understood today, but the verbs opposeth, exalteth, sitteth, and showing are all present tense. So Paul was speaking of his own time. Paul was explaining that apostasy had already come. And by that apostasy, the man of lawlessness was already revealed. That is also a past tense verb. And that, that man of lawlessness was sitting in the temple in Paul's time and pretending to be as God. Paul went on to explain that this situation would continue until the return of Christ, something which has not yet happened. As a digression, Paul wrote his epistles to the Thessalonians while he was in Corinth around 51 or 52 AD, and there's archaeological proof of that, where he described Satan as sitting in the temple in Jerusalem. But John wrote the Revelation after 90 AD, where Satan's seat is said to have been in Pergamos in the 
message to the seven churches, in the message to the church at Pergamos, where Satan's seat is, as we find in Revelation, probably at the end of chapter 2, I believe, or in chapter 2. Ostensibly, I think it's actually chapter 2, verses like 8, 9, 10, right around there. Ostensibly, Satan's seat moved because Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, in between the time Paul wrote and the time John wrote. And the Edomite Jews themselves were not destroyed, and many of them had fled the city. Furthermore, and, and this is an important aspect of history that I, I don't even know if I've ever discussed before. I've always known it, but I don't know if I ever discussed it but because I never really got into um, detail on the state of Judea after the fall of Jerusalem. But Herod Agrippa II, who was the king over the northern half of his grandfather's kingdom of Judea, he was never made king over the whole thing, but he was the king of, of um, Parahiat and, and, and um, Galilee and, and the surrounding regions and even more than that. So he ruled as king over the whole northern half of the kingdom that his grandfather had had at one time, which was all of Judea, right? And that was the first Herod. But Herod Agrippa II also had authority over the temple in Jerusalem. He did not join in the revolt against Rome, Herod Agrippa II. <clears throat> but he was overthrown by the Judeans who did revolt. And with the forces which remained loyal to him, he had fought on the side of the Romans. So he and many of the Edomites with him remained in power in Judea. And the Romans rewarded his loyalty to them by expanding his kingdom in the north to include another region called Batania. So, the Edomites, so does that mean there was infighting amongst the Judeans, the, the Edomites, even back then? Well, yeah. In, in 64, 65 AD, there, were in, there was infighting among the Judeans, and they had actually um, overthrown that they basically refused to acknowledge when they revolted against Rome, they refused to acknowledge Herod Agrippa II as their king. And even in Galilee, which was part of his kingdom, the Judeans revolted from him and rebelled against the Romans. So the greater number of Judeans rebelled against Herod Agrippa II and, and revolted from him and started their, their war against the Romans in 65. And Herod Agrippa II stayed loyal to Rome. And he was an Edomite. And, and his whole family were Edomites. And they stayed loyal to Rome and didn't join the rebellion. And he had um, his own troops and, and generals who, who remained loyal to him. So they didn't join against the, um, the Romans. That They joined the Romans and fought against the Judeans. History's never cut and dry. It's never black and white, right? I mean, in America, during the revolution against the English, you had many English loyalists who, when the Americans won the revolution, 
and and I say that kind of cynically, it, when the Americans won the revolution, a lot of those Englishmen moved to Canada. They 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 fled to Ontario and New Brunswick. If you go to um, New Brunswick in Canada, and I've been there, you go to Fredericton, the capital of New Brunswick, and and go to museums there, which I've been to, they're proud of their loyalist heritage that they didn't revolt from the king, from King George. It's History's never black and white. If you ask the, the, the average American if there were a significant number of um, New Englanders who refused to join the revolution and, and the revolution was still successful, they'd look at you with a blank stare. They wouldn't understand that history. But when you really examine things, they're never black and white. So, so yeah, a lot of Edomites with, with Herod Agrippa II survived. Herod Agrippa II stayed in power. He lived until like um, 90-something AD. He lived as long as John, probably. It's not even known exactly when he died, but it is known that he lived until the last decade of the first century. Going back to Paul's time, let us briefly examine his statements in those verses, verses 3 and 4 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, from the Christogenian New Testament. And first I'll start with verse 3. You should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come, the word come is past tense, had not come first, and the man of lawlessness been revealed, the son of destruction or perdition. Now, the verbs for come and reveal are both in a past tense. There's several different past tenses, and some grammarians might argue with this. They'll claim the aorist tense doesn't have any time element at all, but I don't believe that, and traditionally, it was never interpreted that way. The aorist tense describes an action which happened or at least began. In the past, it may not be completed, but it began in the past. There is no reason to believe that Paul was speaking of something which was going to occur in the future. Greek has a future tense, right? Except for false doctrines in modern churches. The false doctrines in modern churches are based on the fact that they took for granted, just like Weissman takes for granted, that all these Jews, all these Judeans, were Israelites. And the truth is that most of them were not Israelites, they were Edomites. Now for verse 4. He who, and this proves my translation of verse 3, is true, because all of the verbs in verse 4 are present tense. If the apostasy hadn't come, Paul wouldn't be able to write in the present tense here. He who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship, and so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. Present tense. Because of the apostasy, which had already come, which must be a reference to the sin of the people of ancient Judea, Satan was opposing and exalting himself as a god or as god while seated in the temple of god 
All of Paul's verbs in this verse are in the present tense, so the result of the apostasy, which he mentioned in verse 3, had caused the conditions described in verse 4, which were ongoing as he wrote his description of them. And for that reason, we must interpret the heirs tense that he used on the two verbs in verse 3 as past tense, as the aorist tense properly describes an action which had already begun in the past, even if it's not completed as the writer uses the verb, as the writer writes. The historical background. This is the whole, um, sorry, I was just going to say, this is the whole doctrine of the so-called Antichrist who's going to be born. Many Christians look more towards that than the return of Christ, don't they? Some mythical antichrist who will rule the world. But once you realize this, it's all BS. Yeah, once you realize this, and it's once you translate these verses correctly, it's all a lie. The whole um, mythical antichrist is all a lie because Satan has already been here. Satan has always been here. And Satan has very often, and even now, ruled the world because Satan is the collective people of Jewry and all the people that are related to them because there are a lot of people related to the Jews who are not Jews. Collectively, they are Satan. They're already in control of the world. Anybody that can't see that is willfully blind, but clowns like Charles Weissman did their best to keep people blind, to keep them deceived. Weissman knew better. He had to know better. He just refused to accept it and taught the contrary. Either that or he was really dumb and couldn't read because he misread John 8.44, he misread Genesis 6.4, and as we see here a little later today, a little later during this presentation, he misreads Matthew 12.34. And he can't be that damn stupid. He must be misreading these passages purposely. <laughs> the historical background of this epistle of Paul is the fact that the high priests of the time were Sadducees, and it is demonstrable that they were Edomites and not true Israelites. So Paul described the Edomite high priest as Satan, as an adversary, just as Christ had told those same adversaries that they could not believe him because they were not his sheep, and explained to them indirectly in John chapter 8 that being bastards, they were not true children of Abraham, which describes circumstantially, which proves circumstantially that they were Edomites because they were his seed, and which later, and which Paul later explained more explicitly in his epistle to the Romans which was written in 57 AD, where we have already explained his comparison of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9. We have already explained the reasons 
for his comparison of Jacob and Esau. As we had said last week, not all allegories or metaphors are equal. And when one is encountered, the context has to be considered and examined in order to determine what it means. Yet Weissman evidently never wanted his readers to actually examine each of these metaphors, but only take it for granted that they all described people who choose to be obedient, mere sinners, rather than genetic devils. Paul was not speaking of merely disobedient men. Paul was speaking of interlopers, intruders, holding an office which did not belong to them. So they were pretending and not merely going astray. Jude upholds this interpretation of Paul's words, where he wrote in his epistle, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, Matthew chapter 23, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. As John told us in his first epistle, they were from us, but they were not of us. And that they who deny the Christ are antichrists. The same people in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The same people, the Antichrists. And John said that many Antichrists have already been born into the world. The King James Version leaves out the literal meaning of the verb to be born. And they merely have, have come into the world or something similar, I forget. The scripture promises that all Israel shall be saved. Forgiveness, mercy, they're extended to all Israel. Opportunity for repentance are extended to all Israel, without exception. So who are these men ordained to condemnation before of old? And if the enemies of Christ in Judea were Israelites, as Weissman insisted, then how could they possibly have crept in unawares? Yet the entire epistle of Jude, when you read the whole thing, once again proves that these men of whom he speaks are the children of the fallen angels and not of God. And um, also at Paul's time, there were still white Judeans. He couldn't just say all Judeans or Jews are evil or, you know, bastards. So he wrote it like this. And, and the way he says it, it also applies to modern day you know you can't say all senators are jews because they're not there's still some white ones even though jews run everything there's still whites amongst us at least for the time being now well well right i'm glad you said senators because i'm not so sure about the house of lords <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> okay that that's true all senators are not jews but the senate the biggest influencers in the Senate are Jews on, in both parties. And, and Jews must be, I mean, outright ad, admitted self-professed Jews must be um, 15, 20% of the Senate, I'm thinking. 
it, it's a it's a pretty high number. So, but they're not all Jews, and and it was no different in ancient Judea. In fact, ancient Judea was more like the House of Lords than it is the United States Senate, because the House of Lords, since the days of um, emancipation, since before the days of Benjamin Disraeli, who was an an, an openly Jewish prime minister, right? They've been intermarrying with these rich British bankers and merchants. And, and today, much of the um, British nobility is actually descended in part from these rich bankers and, and merchants of the 18th and 19th centuries who they began intermarrying with. Yeah, they would always be having money trouble and then a Jew would intermarry to get the name. And, you know, just like Herod married into the uh, priesthood. It's the same thing that was going on in ancient Judea from the days, from probably the time before Herod, right? Where Herod married the, the, um, the daughter of one of the high priests, or, or I think the brother of one of the high priests, and his name was Alexander, I believe. And Mariam was his daughter. And Aristobulus, the high priest, was his brother. I think I get that right because that there are so many people every generation with the same names that it's kind of confusing. You could see that in the name Herod. There were like eight Herods after Herod the Great, seven Herods after Herod the Great. And, and they all use the name Herod. In the Bible, it's just Herod. And at that time, at the time of Christ, that there were at least um, three men using that name Herod. There was Herod Agrippa one, Herod Agrippa two, Herod Antipas, and they're all called Herod in Scripture. Except in Acts, sometimes Luke uses the name Agrippa to distinguish Herod Agrippa one or Herod Agrippa two. So that they all use the name Herod. Josephus calls them all Herod, and it's confusing as hell if, if you don't see which Herod every time it's mentioned so that you know which Herod he's talking about. So they had been intermarrying with what was left of, of the um, noble people of Judah for, for ever since before the time of Herod. And Herod just puts himself in, 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 his father actually had him appointed to a position in Galilee as an administrator as a young man, and from there on, he weaseled his way in, got in with the royal family, that the high priests who were who the Romans had appointed as kings, and who had started using the, the, the title of king since the days of um, Alexander Janius before the, the, the Roman conquest. But that's besides the point. Herod intermarried with them and, and um, had children with the woman that he married, Mariam, and when he got his opportunity, he had himself appointed king of Judea by the Romans and killed his wife and killed the sons he had with her and killed her whole family, everybody that he could, and, and started appointing all his Edomite cronies and, and people that were loyal to him into positions of power. Well, in England, they didn't have to do that because the English nobility just folded and gave in to the Jews. And, and British Israel loved the Jews. And, and many of the English nobles of the early 20th century 
or, or late 19th century were British Israel. And, and they loved their Jews. They thought they were Judah. So they willfully, even, even the so-called BI people, that they love their Jews, join right to them. They still do. Wow. The deception is deep. And, and Weissman is obviously a part of the deception. In Second Second, I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter. I've already done that. We we've already discussed Jude. I'm sorry. I'm, too many digressions. As we proceed with Charles Weissman here in chapter four of his book, he continues to argue in defense of his lies, and he says on page thirty-four. Such phrases are used figuratively. He's speaking of son of perdition, um, child of hell, children of hell, children of the devil. Such phrases are used figuratively to describe the nature or spiritual disposition of the people involved. No implication, Weissman says, is intended as to descent or biological parents. No one is literally descended from wrath or light or hell or the world or the devil. Devil is simply an idiom or expression for evil. Ungodliness, that which is against God or something abnormal. And Weissman is really... Um, <laughs> obfuscating the truth here as much as he can. He says the phrase, you have a devil in John 8.48, for example, means only that you are crazy. And he's citing George Lamza, idioms in the Bible explained, and Lamza's as full of shit as Weissman was. Likewise, the phrase of the devil means those who are evil or ungodly in the things they do. And, and we have already exposed these claims as lies. And once again, Weissman offers no scriptural proof to support them. They are merely emotional claims based on his own opinions. For example, as we have also already explained, where the adversaries of Christ had told him, as it is recorded in John 8.48, that he had a devil, the word is a different word than the word for devil in John 8.44, where Christ told them that they were of their father, the devil. In John 8.44, the word is diabolus. And in John 8.48, it is dahimanian, the diminutive, the diminutive form of dahimon, which in English is demon. And these words have precise and distinct meanings. Christ did not tell his adversaries that they had demons, but instead he attributed their behavior to the nature of their origin. So Weissman creates another lie by implying that where Christ told his adversaries in John 8:44 that they were of the devil, that they were merely crazy. That's a lie because it's a totally different word than the word where he gets an example from John 8:48. It's diabolus. It's not dahimonian or demon. As we already also explained, apart from the 
fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12. Only Cain and Judas Iscariot were ever called devils in Scripture. The term was used elsewhere of certain men, such as in Matthew chapter 4 or 1 Peter chapter 5, Luke chapter 4. But only Cain and Judas were explicitly identified by name and called devils by Christ in John chapters 6 and 8. Yet hundreds or even thousands of other sinners, many whom sinned even far beyond the sins of Cain, were never called or described as devils in Scripture. Maybe hundreds of thousands, if we include the children of Israel collectively. Even Christ himself encountered many sinners and never called them devils, but instead had granted many of them mercy, pardoned their sins, and healed them of their illnesses. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel sacrificed to devils, sacrificed their own children to devils, and appointed priests for devils, which is evident in the books of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Second Chronicles, and the Psalms. But they themselves were never called devils. It is not clear who wrote the 106th Psalm, but Asaph, a prophet of the captivity, who is credited with being the author of at least a dozen of the Psalms, is a good guess. It's only a guess. The Psalm, Psalm 106, certainly seems to have been written in the captivity. Earlier in this series of presentations, and all the Psalms of Asaph were, were written in the captivity. Earlier in this series of presentations, we explained that because the children of Israel did not destroy all of the Canaanites and other aliens in the land of Canaan, they were to be punished. And those aliens themselves would be the vehicle by which they were punished. Thorns in their sides and pricks in their eyes, as it warns in slightly different terms in Numbers chapter 33, Joshua chapter 23, and Judges chapter 2. In all three of those places, it makes almost the same warning about these Canaanites and other people who were left in a land that the children of Israel did not kill that they were, would be thorns in your side and pricks in your eyes. So this 106th Psalm makes that same correlation. And in part we read where, of course, it is speaking of the ancient children of Israel. And from verse 34, it says, they did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them but were mingled among the heathen, in other words, the nations, it's the same word, goyim, and learned their works. And they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yeah, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils. The devils were the gods, the idols of the land of Canaan. And shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. So 
That tells you who these devils were. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus were they defiled with their own works and went a-whoring with their own inventions, their religious contrivances. Therefore was the wrath of Yahweh kindled against his people, insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. And if you understand anything about ancient Baal worship, you will understand that it is sex and fertility worship. And people that got married at an altar were having sex at the altar. And they didn't stay married because perhaps you'd have sex at the altar next week with somebody different. And he gave them into the hand of the heathen. And they that hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them. And they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low. They were punished for their iniquity. Nevertheless, now note here that they didn't themselves become devils because they did all these terrible things. This disproves Weissman's thesis. It blows it up entirely. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction. In other words, when they sinned, when they sacrificed their children to devils, when they were brought into captivity and, and poverty for that reason, the psalmist is saying, nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry and he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. In other words, God stopped punishing them. He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captives. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Blessed be Yahweh God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say amen, praise ye Yahweh, or praise ye the Lord. This echoes or reflects the entire body of the words of the prophets, which promise that Yahweh God will do this very thing, will gather the children of Israel out of the places of their captivity. And that gathering is in Christ. This is the basis for Christianity. So they were never called devils. Here the children of Israel are said to have worshipped devils, have done all sorts of abominations on account of them, but they are never devils themselves. Rather, they are the children of God who would be chastised for their sin and ultimately reconciled to their God when they are saved out of their chastisement. That's the whole story which is laid out in the books of the prophets and in the revelation of Christ. But the heathen which caused them to sin, who were generally referred to as Canaanites, are those whom the scripture refers to as the children of wrath, the children of the world, the children of hell, the children of disobedience, and the sons of perdition, as opposed to children of light, which are the repentant 
of the children of Israel who have turned to Christ. Esau married Canaanite wives. His children intermarried with more Canaanites at Mount Seir and elsewhere, and for that, they are also descended in part from Cain, the Rephaim, and other unidentified races, which are all eternally opposed to God, the enemies of God, because they are bastards, and for that reason, God wanted the children of Israel to kill them all in the first place, but they refused. They failed to do it. There was probably and some... things going on... Uh... You know, like how we're um, is always being pushed. How how great Hinduism is, how great Buddhism Buddhism isn't, how peaceful it is, and you know, History Channels they do entire series on the golden age of the wisdom of Islam, and how great the Japanese society is, and how we should copy them. It is always getting us to try and follow them. And uh, as for, you know, sacrificing children, you know, uh, abortion, there must have been millions of white Israelites who have been aborted just in the past decade or so. So we're doing it the same thing right now. Exactly. We're doing all these same sins all over again. It's just expressed in different terms today. And, and basically, when a white woman goes to a Hindu abortion doctor and, and he aborts her child, she surrenders her body and her child to the gods, the false gods of that Hindu abortion doctor. That's exactly what she's doing. When she goes to a Jew abortion doctor and he aborts her baby, well, she just sent her child into the fires of Moloch. That's exactly what she did. Oh, it might be called medical today, but it's not. It's the same old sin all over again. Weissman wants to absolutely obscure this history, that all these people, the children of Israel, that the children of Israel were supposed to kill, are still here today. Today we call them Jews, and some of them we call Arabs, and others we call Mexicans, and others we call Turks. But they're all still here. Some of them we might call Sicilians or Greeks because they infiltrated those countries at an early time. Some of them some of them are French, right, or German, because they've infiltrated those countries in more recent times. They hide. They hide behind different identities. They weren't originally Judeans. They weren't they weren't originally Jews. They were Canaanites, Edomites, and Canaanites who had infiltrated, like, like Jude in his epistle said, who had infiltrated the congregation of God and corrupted it. They were interlopers. These first century Edomites are these ancient devils. They're the children, the descendants of these ancient devils. It's real simple. It's so clear once you see this message. You can't deny it unless you have an agenda. And Charles Weissman must have had an agenda. None of his arguments hold up throughout the entire scripture. You're not a devil just because you're a sinner, when millions of sinners were never identified as devils. And even in the life of Christ, I mean, Mary Magdalene was a whore. 
How many men did she sleep with? She had seven demons. They were probably all in her bedroom, not in her head. Christ drove them out. So if you could get that low and be granted the mercy of, of God, why was she never called a devil? The apostles didn't say Mary Magdalene, who was a devil and had seven demons. They didn't say that. And she repented. Okay, that's another digression, right? As we said in our last presentation, one of the purposes of Christ, as it was expressed in the Gospel of Luke, was that the children of Israel would be delivered from the hands of their enemies. Those same enemies who were put over them, as the psalm explains, for their ancient sins. The Edomites, who were also Canaanites by blood, were the rulers in Judea at the time of Christ. Charles Weissman wrote this book, hoping to purposely lead anyone finding the truth of Christian identity astray so that they would not find out the true nature of the enemies of Christ. By that, the Jews could maintain their chosen people myth. Weissman himself said, oh, they were all Israelites. By his words, the Jews could maintain their chosen people myth. There could be no other reason for his lies. I can't imagine one. Returning to Weissman, once he presented his list of metaphors, he made another emotionally based conclusion. And he said, while these words or phrases are used metaphorically based upon the spiritual disposition and or physical works of those involved, the interpretation is not spiritual or literal. That is, the people spoken of are not spiritual children of God or of the devil, nor are they literal or physical children. If children of the devil is literal, then so are children of God and child of hell. No one is descended from some entity called hell. And here Weissman lies again in Luke chapter 3, Adam is called the son of God. And for that reason, because their seed is in them, because they're still pure Adamites, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, all the children of Israel are, co are called the children of God. And there are many other places where the sons of Adam are described as the children of God in the Old Testament. So Weissman set out a list of metaphors with references to the book, chapter, and verse where they may be found. And he makes some conclusions. But nowhere did he offer any substance from Scripture supporting his conclusions. Nowhere. Then when we examine those same passages in their literary and historical context, we come to entirely different conclusions. Ours are based on Scripture, on history, and the history within Scripture, and Weissman's are based on some unsupported emotional argument. We believe that in every instance, the words used in the metaphors which he listed refer to a physical group of people, not merely to sinners or followers of the wrong religion. 
The children of Israel are urged to repent from sin and return to the true religion. And they are never called devils for having been led astray or for having sinned. The other races are devils because they descended, at least in part, from the Nephilim, the fallen ones, whom the words of Christ in the Revelation identify with the devil. So we must let our readers compare the two methods of interpretation to determine for themselves which leads to the more accurate assessment of Scripture. But in my opinion, Weissman is just a clown and a deceiver, purposely lying because he hated the truth. He was Jewish to the extent that if he cut off the tip of his little finger, he wouldn't be a Jew. As he said out of his own mouth, accepting the words of our friend Michael, who was here on, on this program in this series just a couple of weeks ago, right? So, of course, Weissman couldn't accept the truth. He had to twist it. You'd have to accept that he's a devil. Right. And he would never accept that. So continuing once again, I got one more paragraph from Weissman from the bottom of page 34. Now Weissman begins a new argument. Satanic seedline proponents also make reference to the fact that Jesus called these scribes and Pharisees serpents and a generation of vipers. And he's studying Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 and Matthew chapter 23, verse 33. It is said that the word generation in the Greek, which is genema, means offspring or race. They claim Jesus was identifying these people as descendants of the serpent. In error, the error in interpretation here is the same, as the words serpents and vipers are merely metaphors for crafty and underhanded people. They are not physical references. It is the same as when we call someone a jackass because they have been foolish and stupid. Jackass is a metaphor. We do not mean they are physically descended from a jackass or that they are spirit spiritually a jackass. They are a jackass because of their actions. Likewise, Christ merely called these scribes and Pharisees serpents and vipers because of their actions, employing the terms as metaphors. Now, the first thing we should notice here, which I don't even have in the notes, is that Weissman presented one phrase from these two passages and expects his readers to agree with him about the interpretation of the metaphor without actually presenting the entire passage. And notice that Weissman wrote in this paragraph, it is said that the word generation in Greek, genema, he has genema in parentheses, means offspring or race, without any further elaboration on how the use of such a word may indeed affect the manner in which the description of these people as serpents should be interpreted. He didn't consider the word, he only kind of dismissed it. It's said that the word genema means offspring or race. And that's it. He left it as there. 
He left it right there. It is not merely said that Ganema means offspring or race. Rather, it is true that Ganema means offspring or race. It's not merely said. It's in the lexicons. It's in the old lexicons. There is no doubt that Ganema means offspring or race. None whatsoever. Rather, it is true. According to Liddell and Scott's Intermediate Greek-English lexicon, Ganema is properly and primarily that which is produced or born. A child. That's what it really is. It comes from a word which means race. Ganea. But it differs from Ganea in that Ganea refers to a race, stock, or family in its entirety, where genema refers to the produce of a race or family, to a child or to all the children, depending on the context. Furthermore, notice that Weissman once again did not heed the context of the statements by Christ. Where, and I'll use Matthew 12, 34 as an example, where in Matthew chapter 12, he said, O generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The word for generation, and I quoted the King James passage, the word for generation is genema. The phrase is better rendered offspring of vipers, children of vipers. Christ is not telling his adversaries that they are vipers because they did something bad or believed something wrong. Rather, Christ is telling his adversaries that their parents are vipers, offspring of vipers. If I call you a son of a bitch, am I calling you a bitch? No. I'm calling your mother a bitch. I'm insulting your mother. I'm insulting you by insulting your mother. But if I call you a son of a bitch, I'm saying that your mother is a bitch. Wow. That's plain English. It should be easy enough to understand. Christ is telling his adversaries that their parents are vipers. And for that reason, because they themselves are evil, they cannot possibly do or speak anything good. This is at least the third time where we have demonstrated that Weissman does not know how to read or perhaps has purposely misread a passage. First, it was Genesis 6-4. Then it was John 8-44. And now it is here in Matthew 12-34. In Genesis 6-4, we see that the giants were in the earth long before the race-mixing event, which is being described in that chapter. In John 8:44, Christ was calling his adversaries children of Cain, not of the serpent. Now here we see Christ calling the parents of his adversaries vipers. And what sin could they have done, which Weissman could explain? What sin? They're not even alive, more than likely. He's not talking to children here. Christ isn't talking to little children. 
He's talking to grown men who are priests. Most of them, at least, are older than him. Some of them are much older than him. Annas was the high priest when Christ was a young child, 9 AD to 19 AD, maybe 10 years. Caiaphas became high priest by 19 AD, and he's the high priest where the discourse of Christ is here. Christ didn't become 30 until perhaps 28 AD, according to the, my chronology. So, Annas was the high priest, or Caiaphas. Annas was the high priest when Christ was a child. Caiaphas was the high priest when Christ was a teenager. And many of these men that are priests are older than Christ. So, he's calling their parents vipers. And they're grown men. What the hell, man? I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, once again, Weissman like kind of reveals that he does understand that there's different meanings in Greek and he does understand that it means race, but he chooses to cover it up once again. He's definitely not an idiot. He, he definitely has the you know tools to find out all this, his intelligence, but it's inconvenient for him. So he chose to just not reveal it. Right. He just glossed over it. It is sad that it means race. Well, it really properly means offspring. <laughs> and of course, you're, you're being the offspring of vipers and, makes you part of a race of vipers. That's true. But Ganema probably means, properly means offspring or produce, what your race produces. He's calling their parents vipers. Wow. What did they do? And do you think also because the fallen angels were allegorically called the serpent? or the Satan was called the serpent, that their offspring, you could say, were allegorically the serpents, you know, a race, the offspring of the serpent. Absolutely. But never in scripture are merely bad people called serpents. Never. Not once. Otherwise, we would see the term used throughout scripture. When in fact, it's very seldom in the Old Testament. Weissman fails to properly address the word Gedema, fails to understand the implication Christ made by using the context and statement, and offers yet another emotional argument in his attempt to refute our interpretation, once again based on his own logic and not on any supporting scripture. If I call a Negro, and I'm going to use one of Weissman's examples about this um, jackass, right? And, and I'm going to turn it around on him. If I call a Negro a monkey, that is one thing. And in some contexts, it may not even be offensive to anyone. Like if I say, a, look at a Negro climbing a tree and say, oh, he climbs that tree as good as a monkey. That's not really offensive, right? But if I call the Negro the Ganema or offspring of monkeys... I am saying that his parents are monkeys. Then if I say that the Negro is from a Ghanaia or race of monkeys, I am stating, and this is right, I am stating that all Negroes are monkeys. <laughs> now, I'm having fun with this, right? Now, I do not find any offense in that. But where Christ said that his adversaries are the Ghanaia or offspring of vipers, 
He was speaking to a particular group, and he was calling all of their parents vipers. So, was Christ a slanderer, or was he stating an honest fact? Which is it? When were the children of Israel ever called vipers? Collectively, never, no matter how much they sinned. In Matthew chapter 23, which Weissman had also cited here, where the same or similar phrase occurs, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? And, and this, is, this leads us to a, um, a, a topic that, that is obscure because people who interpret it don't properly study Old Testament history. They don't. And for that reason, this can easily be twisted to make us think that Israelites themselves were the only people responsible for killing prophets, and, and that's not true. There is not a lot of information in Scripture as to who had killed the prophets. But in the few places where priests or prophets are killed, it is not always the children of Israel who had done the killing. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, Saul was looking for someone to kill the priests of the temple and found none until one of his herdsmen dug the Edomite. So you see Edomites in Judea, in Judah at the time of Saul. Dug the Edomite, who was also an informer against King David, the future King David, had volunteered for the task and slew 85 of the priests of Yahweh. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, was described as having slew the prophets of the Lord. She was the daughter of Ithobalus, or Ethbal, the king of Tyre, but her father wasn't from the natural line of kings. Her father was, and Josephus explains this in his treatise against Appion, her father, Ithobalus in Greek, was a usurper, a pagan priest who slew the sons of Hiram, the friend of David, so that he could seize the throne. Jezebel was all her life a worshiper of Baal and had despised Yahweh, seeking to also kill Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 9, Yahweh pronounces punishment upon Ahab and Jezebel in order to avenge the blood of the prophets. Once again, calling his adversaries the Gedema, or offspring of vipers, we see Christ is identifying their parents as vipers, stating that they descended from vipers. Yet Weissman fails to explain what sin their parents could have been committed in order to to be called vipers. In Jeremiah chapter 2, it is admitted, addressing the remnant of Judah, that your own sword 
had devoured your prophets. So at least some of the people in Jerusalem were responsible for this. But then in Jeremiah chapter 24, we read where he speaks of that same remnant as it is taken into captivity. Now, to understand what I'm saying here, it's necessary to understand Old Testament history. In the days of King Hezekiah, about 700 BC, the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, or Sennacherib, probably Sennacherib, had come into Judah and had taken captive 46 fenced cities of Judah, slain all the people who resisted, and taken the rest into captivity into Assyria. Probably, and I believe the inscriptions actually state this, in fact, I'm confident they do, probably about 250,000 people were taken captive from these 46 fenced cities, and most of the rest who didn't escape the sword were slain. And that's explained not only in Scripture, in 2 Kings chapter 16, chapter 17, but in the Assyrian inscriptions. And after he was done, only Jerusalem was left, period. So that's why whenever um, Judah is mentioned from that time forward, it's really only referring to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who had, after the Assyrians were gone, had started to resettle the surrounding towns. And it was a small revival in the time of Joash. But after most of Judah was taken away, there was only about 115 years left until the time Jerusalem was totally destroyed. And the rest of Judah, those remnant at Jerusalem, that survived the siege in the days of Hezekiah, that remnant only had about 115 years left until the Babylonians came, destroyed Jerusalem, and carried the rest of them off into captivity. So Jeremiah is writing during that and towards the end of, actually, that 115-year period. And he's really, where he talks of Judah, it's really only that remnant that was left in Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah because all the rest of Judah was taken off into Assyrian captivity. So that helps us understand the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel a lot better once we comprehend that, that history, right? Because Jeremiah and Ezekiel are writing around the same time. They begin writing towards the end of the 7th century BC, maybe 630, 620 BC. And... Both of them witness, I mean, Ezekiel vicariously, but Jeremiah firsthand, that they witnessed the Babylonian invasion and, and the destruction of Jerusalem, except that Jeremiah fled to Egypt. Ezekiel was in captivity at the river Habor in northern Mesopotamia among the captives of the Israelites that had been removed by the Assyrians. So that's the background on that. In Jeremiah chapter 24, we read where he speaks of that same remnant as it is taken into captivity. And he says, the Lord showed me and behold, two baskets of figs, which were set before the temple of the Lord. After that, the book of Drezar, 
king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket, and the language is very important here, one basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then, and we're going to automatically assume that the naughty figs are Israelites, but that's not true. When we read this, it's not true. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good, often to Babylonian captivity. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good. And he's talking about these people, Jehoiakim and, and the princes and the carpenters and smiths, right? They're good figs. For I will set mine eyes upon them for their good, and I will bring them back again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. These are the people who, in the time of Christ, ultimately heard the voice of the shepherd. But then there is another class which would be punished for everything they had done. So Jeremiah continues. Now, it was Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, that was taken into captivity. But Zedekiah was left behind by the king of Babylon, and he made him king. And these people sinned way beyond any of the, the Judahites before them, for which reason Jerusalem is being destroyed. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, those evil figs are never called Israelites. They're some other class of people. Surely thus saith the Lord, so will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, in other words, the people of Zedekiah's court, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them. There were a lot of Judahites or, or Judeans, perhaps they weren't really Judahites, who had went and allied themselves with the Egyptians. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt. To be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. As Jeremiah described it. These rulers themselves, Zedekiah and his princes, were not necessarily evil figs, bad figs. They were in bed with the bad figs. They would be punished by being given over to the evil figs. The evil figs in Jerusalem 
represent another class of people who were inherently evil and never identified as Israelites. There was already race mixing going on in Jerusalem in the days of the Old Kingdom. For example, going back to Jeremiah chapter 2, where we read where Yahweh said, Yet I will Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? And the answer is easy. The Canaanites that were never extinguished out of the land, who Yahweh said would cause the children of Israel to sin. And then it continues in verse 22. For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. So they can't, they sinned in a way that they can't wash it off. And there's only one sin that you can't wash off, and that's the sin of race mixing. You can't cleanse it. Then, and, and Ezekiel, as I said, was rather contemporary to the sin of to, to, I'm sorry, to the time, I'm typing while I'm talking, to the time of Jeremiah. Ezekiel was writing around the same time. In chapter 16 of Ezekiel, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her, to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. These things were not said merely because the people were bad, but because the Canaanites had lived among them and caused them to sin, and when they race mixed with the Canaanites, they became strange slips that couldn't wash the nose off their face. They couldn't wash the sin off their face. But the Canaanites and Edomites were never taken back into captivity. And when the returning people of Judah reestablished Jerusalem and started to mingle with them after forcing them to convert to Judaism, from 129 BC, which Josephus records, and we gave this whole history in a presentation here last week, I believe, or maybe the week before. This is all like a blur to me, right? When the people of Judah started to mingle with them after forcing them to convert to Judaism after the time of John Hyrcanus from 129 BC, that fulfilled the prophecy of the rulers of Judah being given over to the so-called bad figs. They would be condemned and run off that land, and that happened in the diaspora of Jewry, which followed after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Speaking of Yahweh, Jeremiah said of them and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. Speaking of his adversaries, 
Christ said in Luke chapter 21, for thou shalt be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Now, this, um, this also requires some historical background in order to understand fully that I'm not going to get into my notes. I didn't give the last historical background in the time of Jeremiah into my notes, but Christ had warned his followers that when they see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, that they would flee. They should flee Jerusalem into the mountains. And historically, they had that opportunity to do so because the Romans put Jerusalem under siege and under one of their generals, I forget his name, but I explained this at length in my commentary on the Gospel of Luke back about eight years ago, perhaps, maybe nine, and, and had um, the Romans put Jerusalem under siege under one of their generals, and for no reason whatsoever, after only a few days or a short time, he lifted the siege. That gave the followers of Christ, or anyone who understood the gospel, an opportunity to flee Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies. When you read the accounts of this in Flavius Josephus, Flavius Josephus states that at that point, many of the noble people fled Jerusalem. And he even said that some of them went to Peria, I believe. And only the scum were left behind, the rabble-rousers. And a short time later, perhaps a year or so, Titus comes with Roman armies and conquers and destroys Jerusalem and, and slays most of the people left behind, crucifies them outside the gates of the city. So Christ said in Luke chapter 21, and he'd already warned that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies to get the hell out of there, this happened only about 30 38 years after the crucifixion, 70 AD, for thou shalt be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles or perhaps of the heathen, but literally of the nations shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That is the so-called diaspora of the Jews. That diaspora of the Jews is the diaspora, the same diaspora Jeremiah wrote about, the diaspora of the enemies of God who had race mixed with the ancient rulers of Judah, Zedekiah and his princes who were given over to them, understanding. Yeah, the way um, Jerusalem went down, that shows that God's Yahweh is always in control and he does look out for his people. And uh, also another thing, once the noble people left and it was just left to these Jew bastards, all civilization broke down very quickly. There's there's accounts of them, you know, running around um, cannibalizing each. Oh, yeah. You had gangs of, uh... you know, they no longer had to pretend to be, you know, to put on a show because there's whites around them. They just started being what they naturally are. How about the gangs of trannies, <laughs> the, the Sakari? They were, tra <laughs> they were trannies. They were cross-dressers. 
They were dressing as women and robbing people. <laughs> Only a Jew could do that. I'm sorry. Oh, Thor was a tranny. I'm sorry. Thor was a cross-dresser. Um, yeah, it, it's... It, it really did. The, the decadence and immorality um, towards the end of the history of ancient Judea were, were rife. I mean, it was all over the place. It really was a first century sort of Bolshevik and, revolution. They tried to overthrow Rome. Though. And that vision of um, Jeremiah. Sorry. I just said they tried to overthrow Rome. The um, vision of, of Jeremiah where he sees the... Um, what was it? The a noble tree turned into a bad, evil tree. Uh, that that vision is basically any white country now from 50 years ago. You, you know, anyone who was, um, you know, young in that era, if they could see what it's like now, they would have that exact same reaction. Like, what the hell happened here? And today we're cannibalizing our children once again, just in different ways abortions, fetal cells in vaccines. We're cannibalizing. We're eating our children. If there's aborted fetal cells in your vaccine, you're eating that when it's put into your arm. Yeah, and in McDonald burgers as well. Well, I've heard that. I don't know if it's true, but wow. I, I mean, I can't say I would doubt it. I, I, this is the, the same devil's that created Sodom and Gomorrah have now infiltrated all of Christendom. It's been going on for, um, well, it's been going on forever, but in the modern period, it's been going on for the most part since the emancipation of the Jew after the French Revolution. And that's when they were really able to, I mean, they had converted and gotten themselves into the Roman Catholic Church and influenced Roman Catholic doctrines unduly and, and sown all kinds of false doctrines into the church. They've been doing that since the, the third, fourth century. But since the French Revolution, they've really been able to openly subvert Christian society through this um, pretense of democracy. And, and the rest of that story is the Protocols of Satan. That's that's a long story, right? But but yeah, that's and and now today they're in control, and we see all of these ancient sins, and all of these um, ancient pagan cults have their expression in society today, but under different terms, in different ways. And today it's called science and medicine, for the most part. Some of it's called religion. That the um, universalism and and the race mixing and the acceptance of sodomites sometimes it's under the guise of religion. Oh, Jesus loves everybody, but it's just ancient bow worship all over again. There's no doubt. I mean, Tertullian in the third century A.D. Tertullian, the Christian apologist, had written that in the pagan temples, the worshippers had. Um, and adored the genitals of the priests. And the priests in pagan temples, all the way back to ancient Babylon, were prearranging for men that had money, prearranging unions with virgins at the altar. 
a man had money that spotted a woman in, in the pagan community attending this pagan temple would go to the priest and say, hey, I, I want her and, and here's a couple of hundred shekels and, and you fix it up. And they would fix it up. This is described by Herodotus in his history, speaking about ancient Babylon. It's also described in um, First Esdras, I believe, and other ancient literature. I've written on this um, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. I don't remember, maybe 15 years ago. So it's all going on again today. It's just expressed in different ways. But it's the same thing. It's the same sin all over again. It's Sodom and Gomorrah and ancient Babylonia all over again. And there were Canaanites behind it then, and there are Canaanites behind it now. And clowns like Charles Weissman and, and all the rest of these um, bastards in Christian identity making excuses for Jews are or have created all these rabbit holes to catch people in who would otherwise be on a path of, path of truth. And, and Christ spoke about them too. Ye blind guides who, who um, lead people off into the ditch. And that's Charles Weissman and everybody that, that, that professes these same things. And that's a whole lot of supposed CI pastors or teachers. Well, thank you the for being here. The wolves in sheep's clothing, the yeah. thorns in our eyes. Absolutely. And Weissman was a thorn in our eyes, preventing people from seeing the truth. Well, thanks for being here. And I appreciate it. And we'll be back here next week, I guess. We'll get through this fourth chapter eventually. I can't get past, I've been trying to get past page 34 for three weeks now. It ain't happened. So. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Uh, we'll get for it eventually. Um, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of these offspring of vipers. Thanks, Bill. Cheers. Thank you. Praise Christ.